This program is produced by CuriosityStream.com, the world's first ad-free video-on-demand resource for documentary programming that educates, inspires, and entertains. The following is an interview with Ambassador Henry Crumpton about the challenges of U.S. foreign policy and security. It was recorded in front of a live audience during the 2014 Curiosity Retreat at Gateway Canyon's Resort and Spa in southwest Colorado. Hank Crumpton is a legend in the shadowy world of espionage. He's the former U.S. coordinator for counterterrorism, a 24-year veteran of the CIA's clandestine service, and New York Times bestselling author of The Art of Intelligence. His work at the FBI, CIA, and State Department put him at the forefront of U.S. counterterrorism efforts, including the development of armed predator drones. Our interview and audience Q&A is moderated by renowned inventor and technologist Bran Farron. Farron kicks off the conversation by asking Ambassador Crumpton about the complex nature of intelligence programs in the post-9-11 era. Um, I, I come from a fairly narrow perspective of the world, which is what I care about. And um, I'm a proud daddy of a five-year-old daughter, and I care about the world we're leaving her with. And it, it concerns me that she may have less opportunities than we had growing up, which doesn't seem right in the whole scheme of things, that I imagine a world where the two superpowers are a modern China and a Putin-esque Russia, um, basically setting policy for the planet, and that's deeply concerning. And so you sort of look at the role of the United States in all of this and in, in shaping our future. You weigh this against this country's recent prejudice against the intelligence community, the CIAs, the NSAs, the post-Snowden, the post-WikiLeaks, et cetera, era. Um, and it concerns me that on one level, there are a lot of typical citizens who think Edward Snowden is a hero, who think that what he is doing is a service. On the other hand, there's the background of a bunch of dedicated Americans who devoted their lives to service of the country, and we read on the news um, how we're looking at the transcripts of what one pilot or one group said to the other. And people don't ask, gee, how would we happen to have those intercepts and so forth? I wonder if you could comment on that of, you know, the role of America and the interplay between what the intelligence communities and the defense communities do versus the sensibility of our citizenship. Sure. A great question. Big question. The, the the first part of it I would deal with is the need to declassify a lot of the information that's there. I think there should be a much higher bar for what is considered secret. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an industry that thrives on this environment of great secrecy, but large percentage of it, in my view, does not need to be classified. So I would start there. Um, we overclassify things. Uh, now, once you reach that bar and something is classified, I think we should treat it that way as an important state secret that provides our nation and the men and women who are defending our nation and the allies who are supporting us all over the world so we can give them a strategic advantage. Secrecy offers us a strategic advantage against our adversaries. It's so, pretty, so that pretty, goes pretty back to your, your earlier comments of asymmetry, yeah. where these days asymmetry we tend to think of as a disadvantage to us rather than asymmetry, which is an advantage to us. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that 
you know, my view has been that when we listen to complaints, for example, about how could the United States be listening into leadership communications, mm-hmm. every country does everything it can to listen into leadership communications because the general belief is that this prevents wars rather than causing wars. It's a, a kind of different type of transparency, which is, what, what's your sense of that? I think it depends on the government. If you have a liberal democracy, whether it's the U.S. or Australia or Europe or, or, or the growing examples of that around the world, I think an intelligence service protects those liberal institutions and here protects our constitution. I mean, that's the mission of intelligence officers. When I joined the CIA in 1981, January of 1981, I took an oath of an allegiance to the constitution. I treasured that oath. And I think all professional intelligence officers do, or certainly the overwhelming majority. And their mission is to defend our country and defend our constitution. Now, the intelligence objectives and goals and missions of the Chinese intelligence service is different. They don't have a constitution. Their, their mission is to protect the Communist Party of China. And increasingly, that's the case in Russia, too. Protect and advantage it. Absolutely. Protect and advance the agenda of a particular party and particular individuals. And when people draw this moral equivalency between all the world's intelligence services, that's just flat wrong. And that's part of the need to educate our leaders and our citizens. There are great differences. And I think our nation, our leaders have done a pretty lousy job of that. Going to your point about Snowden, I think that's why many citizens embrace Snowden, because the CIA, the NSA, and others have been parked over here in, in this box Uh, And Americans just don't know enough about it. I mean, that's one reason I wrote the book, was to educate our citizens about the fundamentals of intelligence and the value that professional intelligence officers bring to bear. And we have a long way to go, but I think at least we're, I don't think we have any choice. I think we're going to be compelled to educate the public more about this because intelligence is going to be increasingly important given the growing complexity of the world we face today. The value of intelligence to our nation and our citizens is going to grow. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us that have had the privilege and opportunity of serving our nation in different fields of intelligence to to educate them while abiding by the oath of secrecy that that we have taken. What's anyone believe in the room, Ben? On this particular point, Ambassador, uh, President Obama asked several of us uh, in the wake of the Snowden revelations what we thought he should do. And uh, you just echoed something uh, that I think is important, and that is transparency. I think that the general public does not have a very clear understanding or sense of what the intelligence agencies are faced with and what the threats are. That's why your book is uh, such a valuable contribution. I think that this, without revealing things that must be kept secret, I think that the American public would at least understand more readily what it is that we do and why we do it in the intelligence agencies if they understood what the threat was and what methods and techniques have to be used in order to defend our our borders and our safety. How much of that do you think has to do with the short attention span of Americans, where basically we're used to a soundbite view of the world and it makes it difficult to impossible to actually have an extended conversation on a complex subject? We want easy answers. What's the five-minute solution that will make this problem go away. And it seems increasingly, um, and one could say consistently, the problems of the world don't tend to fit into neat little categories. Well, one way to address it is to produce a TV show. 
The, <laughs> the, Funny you should that. <laughs> that captures the short attention span of American audiences and in a very modest way, in a, in a totally fictionalized account, convey some of these lessons and offer the American public, these viewers, you know, some insight. Distorted though it may be by the fictionalized account, but I still think there's a way to convey some of those important lessons. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that people, Americans, like to believe in conspiracies and like to believe that there's the great conspiracy to do this. And on one level, the U.S. government is completely incompetent and can't be trusted, yet it's able to execute these conspiracies brilliantly um, in the background that, you know, no one sees. And, And I think that people lose sight of the fact that when they think an outfit like NSA is spying on American citizens, that the people in the intelligence community are American citizens with families and with the same rights that citizens have. And so the idea that somehow or other there is this global notion to invade the privacy and trust of Americans, it's sad that we've come to that point. How do we, how do we get to the point where people understand better that the United States can't just be inward focused and actually has a role and responsibility to understand the rest of the world and how we fit. I think there are two parts of that, but both go back to our leadership, our political leadership, the people that formulate policies and drive policies. They have a responsibility as consumers of intelligence and as of leaders to educate the public. The Snowden example, uh, there hasn't been a national leader that has really stepped forward and said, we knew all about this, we authorized it, we're engaged in espionage. It's essential to the security of our company, our country rather, and we need to move forward. Whether it's the president or whether it's Congress, there's no political leader has stepped forward and said that. And I'll give you another example. The 9-11 Commission, John, I'm sorry you've heard this before more than once from me. Uh, the 9-11 Commission that was established by policymakers and politicians, what was their charter? They were told to look at the intelligence failure of 9-11. There has never been a commission established to look at the policy failure of 9-11. And if you roll it back and you look at all the intelligence reports, and you look at what al-Qaeda said repeatedly in public, you look at what al-Qaeda did going back to the mid-1990s, attacking our embassies, the USS Cole in Yemen, the Millennium Threat, Dozens and dozens of attacks around the world, yet for some reason our policymakers couldn't accept the intelligence that said al-Qaeda will attack us in the homeland. Well, don't hold your breath for this commission to be established because policymakers, politicians, why would they want a commission like that to focus blame on themselves? And this is one of the challenges for the intelligence professionals because they are a very convenient uh, excuse. They're a whipping boy for politicians. Well, especially when it's not clear that I understand what our foreign policy is, meaning we seem to be in a mode where we're almost completely reactive rather than pro. It's not like we have projected a vision for the country and the world and where we think it is and articulated that. But I, I think as part of that, how we defend our country, because the time constant of what it takes to build a defense, whether it's strategic or some other form, the military uses a process which is predicated on our ability to predict the future. 
the quadrennial review, the QDR basically says, here's where we think the world will be in 10 or 15, 20 years, because that's how long it takes to get a new fighter plane or a new this or a new that. And so we think the world is pretty much over here. And there was a very interesting study, which I'd recommend people read, shared by Richard Danzig, former Secretary of the Navy, called Driving in the Dark. And they looked into this and found that our ability to predict the future is unblemished with success. We have actually never been right in any of the predictions. Something like Arab Spring, which in the Middle East, was certainly the largest muscle movement we've seen in a long time. And and to me, this is particularly compelling because when I was 10, I lived when my dad was artist-in-resident in Beirut, and I lived there and saw Beirut when it was the Paris of the Middle East. And when countries like Syria were considered these backwater non-players in the region and then turned into the power center of the region. So while on one level things have a very long time constant, things actually do change very quickly. But what is your sense of our foreign policy and how it should inform our strategic, our intelligence, and our, our perceived role in the world? I don't think we have a strategic direction right now. And that translates into... A, a very fractured, uncertain foreign policy. And this goes back to the point I made earlier about the responsibility of, intellig- of intelligence consumers, our policy leaders. Without a policy, without clear direction and requirements that intelligence professionals can use, what, how can they collect? I mean, they must be directed by their consumers, not mistreated. And that's a big part of what we're facing. Um, Another aspect of this is the centralization of authorities and analytical decisions in Washington, D.C. I referred to this earlier in my comments. If you look at all the post-9-11 bureaucratic uh, changes and transformation, it's all been very Washington-centric. Where we've had success, and I'll give you three examples. I already talked about the campaign in Afghanistan, 01-02, uh, Southeast Asia, you've had remarkable success against Jama Islamiyah, also in Colombia against the FARC. Now you can argue that, well, in the first case, Afghanistan, I think I think it was pretty clear the president asked his national security team who had a plan for Afghanistan. The only person who spoke up was the CIA director George Tenet. Therefore, he was given unprecedented authorities and resources. But the other two examples, you could argue that. The reason they succeeded is because, for whatever reason, you had some really great ambassadors in these parts of the world. You had great local partners. And this may be the key. Washington was so focused on the Middle East, they let them do their job in Southeast Asia and in Colombia. So there are some models out there that we can use. And and all of them have a field bias with good leadership in the field and and good local partners. Mm -hmm. Yes. I come from Colombia. And there's been this subtle, subtle invasion of the Soviet Union in Latin America. Through Cuba, now through Venezuela, mm-hmm. Ecuador, Bolivia. And the sense that we have as Colombians is that Americans have abandoned us the last six years. That's the first question. And we are on the backbone of the United States. Should be important for And the second question is we have this part guerrillas, which 50 years ago had a political background. Mm-hmm. Now they're just drop track. Mm-hmm. Very soft drop track. And 
having hard current problems, he's making trying to make a peace treaty with his country. Mm -hmm. I want to know your impression about both uh, The impression about the the abandonment the, the, the abandonment, the perceived abandonment of Colombia. How do you see the peace treaty with the FARC? Okay, the peace treaty with the FARC. Um, I don't think the U.S. has abandoned Colombia. I think if we look to the south and we see our allies, that Colombia is at the top of the list. I think that those that are informed, not just the intelligence, the military, but in the policy communities, they understand the value of the partnership with Colombia. And in part because Colombia's had some terrific ambassadors in the United States. Uh, Luis Alberto Moreno is, is, is one example, one of the architects of, of Plan Colombia. He's now president of the Inter-American Development Bank. He and other leaders like him, I think, will continue to educate and encourage American policymakers to understand the value of Colombia. I was just there in January. I had a great trip, by the way. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, your points, though, were valid about these other countries in Latin America. And if you look on a map, I wish I had a map we could sh show you. Those countries in Latin America that face the Pacific there's been some remarkable progress there over the, the last few decades, whether it's Chile, whether it's Colombia, Peru is even coming up in, in many ways. Uh, Mexico, the regulatory reforms that the, the new government of Mexico is undertaking, is, it's remarkably courageous. Now, you still have horrible drug violence in Mexico. You have pervasive corruption. Uh, but if you look at many of these countries in Latin America that face the Pacific, the liberal institutions that are growing, the entrepreneurs, the empowerment of women, it's a very positive. On the other hand, if you look at some of these Latin American countries that face the other way, Venezuela being at the top of the list and their, their marriage with, with Cuba, and not just Cuba, you have Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps in Venezuela right now, hundreds of them in Venezuela, in our hemisphere. Um, and you mentioned Ecuador also. There uh, is sort of an exception, but there is a drift in the wrong direction there. So there are two narratives, there are, there are two things that are happening in Latin America. And we, of course, need to reinforce our allies and then address some of our adversaries in a more direct and firm way. And I would include Venezuela in that. Your question about the peace treaty or the negotiated peace treaty with the FARC, I tend to agree, maybe not as, as strenuously as your former president, President Uribe, does. Um, I think that... Uh, the current President Santos and his administration should have waited another year and put more pressure on the FARC. I mean, there's great progress, and they've gone from 20,000 fighters to less than 5,000 effective fighters. They've been isolated in parts of the country. Uh, I would have finished that job from a military perspective. I mean, another year, 18 months, I think, would have gotten Colombia to a more to a better position from which they could have negotiated and, and then put this rebellion to rest. And your characterization of the FARC is, is 100% accurate. 50 years ago, there was a strong element of political ideology, communist ideology, but now they, they are indeed nothing more than drug thugs. They're, 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 they're guns for hire, basically, now. This program is produced by Curiosity Stream. If you want to take a deep dive into stories about civilization, science, technology, and much more, check out CuriosityStream.com, the world's first ad-free video-on-demand resource for documentary programming that educates, inspires, and entertains. Visit CuriosityStream.com. That's CuriosityStream.com.
We now return to our interview and audience Q&A with former U.S. counterterrorism coordinator Hank Crumpton, moderated by renowned technologist and designer Brand Farron. So there's this kind of threat to stability, global stability, which are regional interests, and, and how do we align our interests with you know who our friends are and who they are. And I wonder if you could comment for a moment on a very different type of threat, which gets a lot of press these days, but almost no clarity, which is, for lack of a better word, the cyber threat, which is to say the the accumulated nations of the world or entities of the world, which are not necessarily nations, which have a capability to inflict grievous harm upon the United States, whether it's economically, physically, loss of life, et cetera. I mean, you know, it, it, of course it's hard to, but on a scale of one to two, how big a deal is this? Is this something we're worried about too much or exactly the opposite that we're not worried about enough? Well, it's a great question, big question. There are others here certainly more qualified than I am to answer this, including you and, and Dr. Cert. Um, but the simple answer, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big threat. And it's not just the protection of information, the protection of, of money. And it's, it's increasingly the protection of our infrastructure. We heard about the Internet of Things. Well, we're becoming more and more dependent on cyberspace to, con- to protect and to control our transportation, our communication, um, across the board. And we have a long way to go. The financial services sector, because they've had to deal with this problem uh, from the beginning, are much more advanced than other industries. But if you look at power generation, our electric grid, uh, it's it's in sad shape. It's really fragile. And we're not investing in an infrastructure that, is more resilient. In fact, in fact, we're investing in infrastructure that I think is increasingly more fragile. And, it, 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 and we can address it in terms of having a distributed energy system, particularly the advances in renewable energy and the distribution of, of energy. It, sh- it should be retooled from top to bottom, but it's expensive and it's difficult and we're very comfortable living where we are. My prediction and I know intelligence professionals aren't very good at predicting. In fact, they shouldn't predict. They should make analytical judgments. So let me make an analytical judgment. (laughs) (laughs) There will be a 9-11 equivalent in cyberspace at some point. And then maybe we'll wake up and we'll address this this issue in, in in a more responsible way. It does seem as a country our strength is at a moment of crisis rather than when there's a problem which has an indeterminate immediate impact, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's when our communities who are so often at odds with each other or seemingly at odds with yeah. each other cooperate in ways we've never seen happen before. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me add, uh, if I may, a note of optimism and balance to this discussion. Uh, despite our lack of strategic direction, despite our, our failures in some foreign policy, particularly the Middle East, we have had some pretty remarkable success. Southeast Asia, I mentioned. Uh, Colombia is an example. Unfinished business, but a big difference in just 10 years ago. The accords that we're working toward in international trade, I have a lot of criticism for this Obama administration, but they have this right. And if they can execute on these international trade pacts that are being negotiated now, that would be a big, important step. Now, beyond our government, beyond our leaders, if you look at the blessings we have as a nation, it's remarkable the energy revolution, the manufacturing revolution, the entrepreneurship, the universities. 
there is a reason that Russians and Chinese and others from all over the world want to send their children here, want to invest here. There's no country on the planet, although Australia and Canada are pretty good, and they're certainly great allies, that, that have the kind of resources and attraction that we have. My, my, my good friend who's at Harvard, Professor Joseph Nye, talked about soft power, the ability to attract, well, by far, the United States is the best in the world at this. And we should not squander these resources and this opportunity. And that should be part of our strategic thinking and, and planning because we do have so much to offer, our citizens and, and our allies. Now, earlier when we was talking about this sort of network conflict in the Middle East, there are much bigger, deeper, far more complex networks that link entrepreneurs, the rule of law, and liberal institutions all around this planet. It's a very positive thing. And we need to learn from that and embrace that and magnify that in our strategic planning and our execution. That's how we advance our national interest and those of our allies around the world. So, going back to a couple of things you said, uh, when everything happened in 9-11, George Tenet was normal with a hard plan. Uh, and you interfaced well with the FBI. And you talk about the soft touch and how there are ways to do things that sort of help prevent some of these things, and also the intelligence that you gather when you're on the ground. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, you talk about FBI, CIA, but what about the State Department? What about diplomacy? What about, I don't know how the CIA interacts with the State Department, but there are obviously a lot of programs on the ground in a lot of these areas where they have a lot of really good local knowledge. Do you interface with them at all in this way, or do you just sort of stay compartmentalized because you don't want to affect what the State Department is doing? But, you know, John and I work a lot on programs there, and I know that in a lot of these places, they have a lot of public-private partnerships that are going on. Mm -hmm. They know the tribal leaders. They know what's going on. Is that intelligence important to you, or is that something that you don't take into account, or is there just a firewall between you and the State Department? There's no firewall. There is a, a degree, varying degrees of cooperation on the ground and back in, in Washington. But an important aspect of that is that the ambassador is the boss. He is the president's representative. And the CIA chief of station in that particular country, he answers to the ambassador. Now, the ambassador does not know the sources and methods that are employed in specific operations, but the ambassador, and in most cases, his staff, uh, you know, the political officer, the defense attache, others that make up the embassy, they benefit from the intelligence, or at least they should benefit from the intelligence, so they can make better decisions about their specific programs. And I've been lucky in, in the, the stations that I've, I've been assigned to, um, except for two cases, I had really good ambassadors that were good consumers, responsible, and ask a lot of great questions. And that's a great thing for an intelligence officer when you have an interested consumer of your product, a demanding uh, uh, customer who asks a lot of good, hard questions. And uh, when you have that, that kind of relationship in an embassy, it's, it's, it's synergistic. And you have a good consumer, you get better intelligence, and it reinforces the policy and reinforces the uh, relationships between the people. And whether it's state or CIA or FBI, there's always going to be imperfections and turf wars. 
we'll never get over that. But what really works is the personal relationships. I, I may give you one example. Uh, I had a phone call. This was when I was in CIA headquarters. Uh, this was in uh, early October of 2001. I had a phone call from Colonel John Mulholland. Now, John was a commander of 5th Group, Special Forces Colonel. He was in Uzbekistan. He was trying to figure out how to get his special forces into Afghanistan to link up with our teams. And we had dropped two teams in. We were getting ready to send more. My chief strategist in the CIA and John Mulholland were like this because they went to the National War College together. They spent a year together. And they had been talking all the time. I didn't know that. but It was a great thing. And so this officer that worked for me in CIA headquarters, he and John were talking, and he said, John, call my boss and tell him what your problem is. And so John did. So I get a call from the, CIA, from the Special Forces Colonel in Uzbekistan calling me in CIA headquarters, and he says, this is who I am. These are my needs. I need to get to Afghanistan. And I told him. We had about a 20-minute conversation. I shared with him everything that he needed to know. Then I turned to my chief of staff and I said, would you get an intelligence representative, one of our officers, a CIA officer, sitting next to John Mulholland? I want him there tomorrow. Now, John and his relationship with the CIA officer and then John's leadership, that takes some moxie to call CIA headquarters when you're in the military chain of command. Well, you know, John made that call, and it made all the difference because we accelerated the integration of special forces with CIA, and we got things moving after that call. Now, John is is now a, a I think a three or four star in command of of all uh, special operations in the United States. Uh, but again, my point is personal relationships and individual initiative and leadership that cuts through a, a lot of the the bureaucracy. We have a lot of hands, so I'm going to attempt to work myself around the room. I don't know if this is a policy or a leadership or whatever. You made the comment, and it, and it, it, it strikes home in my backyard because the Green Mountain Boys are going to get some of the, the jets, as you probably are aware. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is there a chance that this process, with the, the way you described it, can it will either be used as a bad example and changes made, or is it a way for the future? You're talking about the, the F-35, yes. the, the, the procurement process. Well, if history is an example, we will not learn the lessons we need to. <laughs> and, and this is nothing new. President Eisenhower, in his farewell address, he warned us about the military-industrial complex. Well, well, now it's the military, homeland security, intelligence industrial process, I guess. Um, we didn't listen to President Eisenhower um, so I, I wish I could be more hopeful about about that particular process. Back um, a while back, I sat on an advisory board for one of the top cybersecurity companies. We, uh, during uh, work for NASA, we, we uncovered uh, an operative in, in NASA that was sending out data through encryptions on pictures of his wife and kids. Uh, out of NASA that uh, uh, turned out to be how to take the International Space Station down over New York City. Mm-hmm. So I never heard what happened to it, but I never heard more about it after that either. And I was fine with that. And I was proud of that, actually. 
was so proud when I heard we were you know, listening in on the cell phone of the uh, president of Germany. Uh, the cyber uh, company has since been sold back to it's off doing whatever it does. But, uh, you know, with the invention of the web, which is like just yesterday, the ability to eavesdrop, no matter what anybody tells you, you know, with XML and cookies and everything else, uh, which is just dirty easy. Uh, we've never had the ability to eavesdrop like we've ever had, like we have now, and vice versa, country to country. Where do we draw the line? Who, who is to draw the line? Is, it, is, this, is this something that there needs to be a special commission uh, put together with in, in, in the U.S. at least, or internationally very soon? And obviously, we can't depend on the United Nations or the Security Council or anybody else to do it. But I mean, you know, this is still all the rage, all the talk, but I haven't heard anybody really step forward with you know, an answer to this. I mean, is it just inevitable that with this new uh, network that really is, even though it's 30, 40 years old, it's now everywhere, it's pervasive, it's easy to hack. Uh, and what do you, just what do you think about that? I mean, where, where's the responsibility lie? And I know technology is always a reflection of society. Where, where do you think it lies in terms of drawing the line? Uh, it goes to my earlier point about the responsibility of our political leaders and consumers of intelligence. Uh, these uh, programs that have been revealed by Snowden, they were known to uh, the uh, political leadership, both on the executive and, and the legislative, at least in the oversight committees uh, of Congress. And, and, and none of them have really stepped up to ag- acknowledge it in full and to explain the importance. So it's a failure of leadership in, in one respect. Now, the specific uh, incident that you mentioned, uh, the eavesdropping on uh, Germany's Prime Minister Merkel's phone, that was just dumb. I mean, you, you look at operations and you, you weigh risk versus gain. Now, espionage is pervasive. It's part of international relations. I don't think that's going to change. I mean, the $80 billion budget the intelligence community gets every year in the U.S.? Well, what do citizens think it's for? It's for espionage. It's for spying. Um, but we have to draw limits. First, there's the, the common sense side of thing. I don't think we need to spy on, on this German prime minister. Uh, maybe the next one, we, we, we might. We don't know who's going to be there. I wouldn't rule that out. And by the way, uh, our European allies, they spy on us. Now, there are some exceptions if you look at, at, uh, at Britain and, and Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in particular, and a few others where there is such a close uh, degree of cooperation, you know, that there is absolute minimal degrees of real espionage against each other. The big question, though, is what do all of you think is appropriate? You are citizens of the country. And what do your representatives in Congress think? And, and if there is less intelligence, if there is less, and this is really important too, that we, in many cases, we've defined intelligence as surveillance. That's wrong. Surveillance is a part, sometimes a very small part, of the greater intelligence picture. And the most effective intelligence when you're talking about homeland security is at the local level, at the local police force with trusted relationships in that 10-square block. If you have a well-informed beat cop and he knows his, his beat, 
and he knows the people in that community, that's the best intelligence tool you can have. Certainly better than some sort of Orwellian surveillance system that feeds back into Washington, D.C. So it's the concepts of intelligence that we need to address. Surveillance can be a very important part, but only a part. So that's one point. And secondly, if we look at what we lose by the lack of intelligence in this environment that I've tried to describe, these global threats, well, then there may be a cost to pay. And maybe we as citizens are willing to pay it, but we should be aware of that. Whether it's another 9-11 or something less or something more. But the threats are real, and intelligence provides us a degree of defense. But we need to be better educated about that so we can make informed decisions and express this when we vote for members of Congress and when we vote for those in the executive. And and, to that point, it shouldn't be entirely surprising to most citizens that one of the things spy agencies do is spy. And, you know, faulting them for doing what their name says they do is, is part of it. But a role that often isn't realized is what they also are responsible for is protecting secrets and making codes and doing all of that. And if I were someone being spied on, such as a leader of Germany, I'd want to have a little conversation with the people on my side whose job it is to make sure that my phone isn't being monitored just as much as, you know, public protests. So there are two sides of this, and they're incidentally often at odds with each other because on one level you have a group whose responsibility is getting secrets they like loopholes. And then the job of the people protecting secrets, they would like to close loopholes because the same loopholes that advantage us um, also advantage our enemies. John, did you have a question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, follow up on your Afghanistan experience. Mm-hmm. What's the lesson we learned? Because from my observation, we lost our focus uh, after a couple of years. We turned our attention, our money, our resources to Iraq. Yes. Um, would there have been a different outcome? And I'm asking you to look at the crystal ball, of course, but what's a lesson we, we should learn from that? To finish the job uh, with a projection of non-military power. The, the, the good lesson that we have learned and we built upon uh, in terms of operations is the integration of intelligence and, and special forces. Uh, it is breathtaking. Uh, we started it in our own modest way in Afghanistan. Others like Stan McChrystal have taken it to new levels. That continues. The intelligence support and the integration between covert action and our paramilitary operations and special forces really is a great success story. Uh, the bin Laden raid is, is one example, but there are countless others. So that's a positive lesson that we have embraced, we have learned, and, and we should acknowledge that. At a policy level, what we failed to do is go beyond the the intelligence, covert action, military aspect of power projection. This is what I referred to earlier in my talk. Now, each location is different, and that's what's hard. You have to have uh, specific solutions for specific venues all around the world determined by what the locals want and need to a large degree, which means you have to listen. Sometimes we're not very good about that in, in Washington, D.C. That's a lesson I think we, we really have, have not learned. And harnessing not just the instruments of statecraft within our reach, the different bureaucracies, but looking broader to all these non-state actors that I referred to earlier, including the private sector. I mean, if you can provide security, you can provide rule of law to a degree, 
and there are economic opportunities there, I promise you, entrepreneurs will show up. That's the kind of foundation that we need to build. And our aid program should be a part of that. I, I've gone to parts of the world, and I, I always ask the aid directors there, okay, what are your programs that are really springboards to private sector investment? Very few are. Now, there's a humanitarian response and crisis. I get that. But beyond that, aid is important, but it's going to be more important, more effective if it's linked to an enduring investment. And the private sector's role is, 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 is key to that. It would seem part of the, the issue is if there's an expectation that we should finish the job, actually defining what that means Absolutely. in each particular instance uh, so that the people yeah. whose job it is to execute actually know what job it is they're finishing. And they have the resources to do that. Yeah. If you ask what an ambassador's discretionary spending is, it's in the tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. They have to make decisions about, do I have one or two receptions this month? And you compare that to the money spent on the F-35. I mean, the, the, the gap is extraordinary. We're not investing in our people. And the people are the best defense, the best line of foreign policy decision-making and non-military power projection. It's our people. And we should be oriented toward that. Because we have great professionals in the State Department. In fact, I've never seen an organization populated by so many great people where the aggregation of these individuals is somehow less. I mean, it is a dysfunctional bureaucracy populated with some superior people, brilliant, courageous, but the State Department does not function very well. This program was recorded in front of a live audience during the 2014 Curiosity Retreat at Gateway Canyons Resort and Spa in Southwest Colorado. We now return to our interview with former CIA officer and best-selling author Hank Crumpton, hosted by technologist and inventor Bran Farron. We have a lot of people in the room to get to, so I'm going to ask that we go to a speed chess mode where... If you could answer in 112 words or less, that would be nice. And if you could ask brief questions, that would be helpful as well, sir. Yes. One tactic which is used in a situation like this is to get multiple questions asked before a response comes back and you can synthesize. So could I You're, you're, you're assuming I'm, well, I, I can remember them all. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to try it. <laughs> Question number one, two, and three. Uh, Vladimir Putin came up through the intelligence community. That makes it quite different as a world leader, I would assume. What's your perspective on how he would be different and how we should treat him? Don't say a word for this birthday. Yeah, and we have the secretary. Yeah, that was just uh, one of the confusing things about the night we, of course, lost our ambassador and the personnel that God was, you know, my perception was always the Marine Corps was protecting our outposts and our embassies. But the CIA apparently had an outpost there and it ended up being the CIA professionals who were, you know, trying to defend the first. I was just wondering, is that a setup that's normal? Is that an abnormal situation? And, you know, what have you learned about that situation? Got it. And the third question. Second, do you think there's any possibility of, uh, in Afghanistan, of ever a solution to uh, or having a peaceful country? And uh, second, is there anybody in Washington now that you would we also expect one answer to all three of those questions. Um, why don't we do them in reverse order? Um, the Afghanistan question. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, you've got uh, two presidential candidates vying over a disputed election right now, Abdullah Abdullah 
and Dr. Ashraf Ghani. I, I know them both. Uh, I've been disappointed, but not too surprised uh, at what's transpired. I, I, I am surprised with the degree of ballot um, uh, manipulation, though. I mean, maybe one to two million ballots off. That's uh, pretty extraordinary, even by Afghanistan standards. That part did did surprise me. Uh, John Kerry, to his credit, has done a good job brokering an agreement between the two. And I've, I've just heard today they've had a hiccup trying to sort out, you know, the, the next steps. But I think either one of them could be a credible uh, presidential uh, uh, leader for Afghanistan. Both have said they would sign the uh, defense agreement with the U.S. I think that they will. And I think you need about 10,000 troops left in the U.S. in terms of, of training and helping support the Afghan military, which is really pretty good. I mean, the Afghans know how to fight. Uh, need to do a much better job in terms of their police force and the judiciary system. And they, another example of projecting, you know, non-military power, because there is vast corruption and uh, at least half the economy is based on, on narcotics trading. So a long way to go, but there's a possibility there. And if you could get to the point where there is enough security and enough rule of law and get some of these private sector interests involved in the mining and oil and gas exploration, U.S. Geological Survey deployed a team and they estimate at least $1 trillion worth of minerals in the ground. Uh, so it's not a poor country in that, in that regard. Your other question about who in Washington? There, there's a reason I don't live in Washington, D.C. anymore. <laughs> And at the risk of being a little bit, a little bit cynical, um, I, I am enormously disappointed. And um, I've heard two statesmen just in the last couple of days have observed. One, Dr. Brzezinski, who's now 86 years old. He was the national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter. He said he, he in his lifetime, has, have, has never seen such instability. And he's seen a lot in the decades that he served. On the Republican side, uh, Senator John McCain has just come out and said, you know, he, he's never seen such insecurity. Now, I, I disagree with him. I think it was far more insecure during the Cold War. We've just sort of forgotten that. But it's extraordinary when you have these type of comments coming out of statesmen in, uh, in D.C. I am more hopeful about some of the younger political leaders. I'm not going to name any, but some of them have served overseas in the armed forces some in the intelligence community, and they're now coming back running for, for uh, office. I think that uh, they're not going to put up with what's been going on in D.C. after what they've seen and what they've done downrange. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what plays out. And, and on a, a positive note, if you see some of the local communities, what they're doing, some of these metropolitan areas, got some pretty dynamic leadership challenging the status quo in areas of education and health care, uh, and I hope maybe some of those leaders at the local and state level can, can set some good examples for D.C. Thank you. And I believe Benghazi was our next time. Uh, Benghazi situation. You yep. have the CIA outpost and you have the Marine Corps you know, guarding the, uh, uh, not the embassy, but the consulate. Is that a normal uh, split up at all? Uh, no. What The Marines are... Uh, deployed at, at the embassies, and they are deployed at some of the larger established consulates, and they do a very good job. What This was different in Benghazi. You really didn't have a full-scale consulate. You had basically an outpost, an office that was uh, fairly temporary. 
And the protection of the ambassador fell to the diplomatic security detail in the Department of State. And uh, they lost two of their uh, of their special agents uh, uh, in that uh, in that fight. They didn't have enough resources there. This is an example where you've got the ambassador asking for more security in Washington saying no. My earlier point about having the right leaders with the right resources downrange, this is an example of that. The ambassador should have sufficient resources where he doesn't even have to ask. If he wants to go to Benghazi and he thinks there's a threat there, he should have the resources at hand to deploy and to vent himself and his people. The CIA intervention, um, and this has all been in the press now, the CIA had their own separate uh, post. It was an annex. I think it was about a mile uh, from from this uh, temporary consulate building. And when the attack occurred, the CIA, they responded. And that's not their their primary mission. That's the Department of State's security people and Marine Guards. But when you're under attack, you respond. And I think the, the first CIA team was there within about 20 or 25 minutes. And uh, they engaged. They were able to evacuate. I forget the numbers, but but maybe 20 people uh, from that temporary consulate. They fell back to the annex. They protected them. And then the annex, the CIA annex, was attacked by mortar fire, very accurate mortar fire. And two of the CIA contractors were, were killed in, in that fight. And this, what I just described, was over the course of several hours, you know, through through the night. This is not just, you know, one engagement. This is repeated engagements. They had running gunfights. Um, uh, about a mile long in in in, in Benghazi. So, um, but y- you see that, co- that kind of cooperation w- when you're downrange in those environments. You're less concerned about what your agency is, and you're more concerned about your fellow citizen. And that happens time and time again. Uh, doesn't matter whether you're a Marine or security or Army or CIA. If Americans are under fire, you can respond. If the question was Putin. Uh, he's uh, former KGB. Yeah. Uh, a good question. Putin has embraced a, a mindset of a, a Russian nativist. He has defined Russia as all Russian people in the ethnic sense. And let's recall a conversation I had with a Russian official, this is probably 25 years ago, about the concept of an American, what it means to be an American. And this discussion went on for three or four hours, and he just could not get it. I tried my best to explain to him about the idea of America and what it means to be an American, irrespective of your ethnicity or of your origin. And I failed entirely (laughs) in explaining that to him. His idea of America, as it was with Russia, should be about ethnicity. I mean, it was deeply rooted in his mindset that Russia is for Russians, ethnic Russians. And then Putin brings that same view. Now, if these Russians happen to be in Ukraine, well, he interprets it as that is is his responsibility. I think he truly believes that. And that is in large part explains why you have such aggression, Russian aggression in Ukraine today, because of this of this mindset. It will be a long term mistake, a huge mistake for Russia. 
because, and again, if I can recall a conversation I had with a more recent conversation a few years ago, only a couple of years ago, with a, a senior Russian, a banker. I asked him, I said, from your perspective, what are your biggest concerns or what are your biggest strategic issues for the Russian state? He says, well, has nothing to do with the United States. I said, okay, well, what, what are they? He said, that, he said, there are two. One is the integration of the Russian economy into the European economy. He said, that's our future. We just cannot keep exporting natural resources and expect to survive decade after decade. He said, those resources are finite. And we've got to take advantage of the human capital we have. We can't have our best and brightest, all these young entrepreneurs moving to Palo Alto. We've got to keep them in Russia. And the way you do that is you integrate into the European economy. I said, yep, I buy that. And I asked, well, what's the second issue? He says, our back door. He says, we have been over the centuries invaded from the east. And he said, that's not going away. It could be an economic invasion, not a military invasion, but that is an existential threat to Russia. And what he's talking about, of course, is China. This population, this voracious need for natural resources, in contrast to Siberia, which is being depopulated. If you look at the average age of a Russian male now, I think it's 58 years old. Between violence and alcoholism, it's in a horrible state. And this banker, he was so clear and so precise in his description of these two strategic issues, I'll never forget it. And I look today at what Putin has done. Well, he has done the worst possible things to address those two issues. He has distanced himself from Europe, from the economies of Europe, from private sector, from rule of law. And he's cut a very bad deal with the Chinese on energy just a, a couple of months ago. So I am very pessimistic about Russia long term. So how would you characterize for us the difference between an organization like the KGB and the CIA? Pretty simple. The KGB, uh, they were the shield and sword of the Communist Party. That's their, that's their official mission, their official credo, the shield and sword of the party and those party rulers. In contrast, a CIA officer, when he joins the agency, he takes an oath not to a party, not to a political leader. He takes an oath to the Constitution and embraces the rule of law. And that's reinforced every day by all the lawyers that are in the CIA providing guidance on what's legal and what's not. That's the difference. Not a subtle difference. No, not a subtle difference. Pretty fundamental difference. Ma'am. Yes. Um, first of all, you remind me of Charlie Wilson's war. And I thank you for that energy and for your service. Thank you. My question would be with, and you spoke to it briefly, with the increase since 9-11 of intelligence agencies and with some of the redundancy and yet the silos that occurred, would you speak to those complexities as well as the fact that more and more we seem to be privatizing and contracting part of these services so that there is no oversight as such? And I know this doesn't deal with the CIA, but the example I would give is Blackwater or Z or some of those mm -hmm. contractual 
uh, Defense Department and intelligence groups that do not have the true oversight of uh, Congress or the agency itself. There has been a proliferation of intelligence uh, agencies and also agencies involved in the counterterrorism mission. The Washington Post did a, a very deep and insightful study of this. I think it was last year, the year before, maybe later or, or, or earlier, um, about this community of agencies, both in the intelligence overlapping into the counterterrorism mission. And there were hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, mostly Washington-centric. That was a very useful piece of, of, of journalism, I thought. Reveal some secrets, but overall, I think it was a positive contribution. Now, sadly, we haven't done much to address that, including some of the stovepipes that, that you've, you've talked about. Um, one way, and again, I'm repeating myself, is you had a bias to the field. If you had an ambassador that was empowered, then he could make those decisions and sort some of those things out. That does happen to a degree when you're overseas. The bigger, more complex issue is here in the homeland. And that concerns me because I'm a, a strong believer in, in our civil liberties and, and rule of law. Moreover, I think this, this Orwellian surveillance system that, that some propose, uh, it's not only wrong, it's not only intrudes on in our civil liberties, it's ineffective. It takes us away from that community policing that I talked about and community leadership, which is a far more effective way of, of thinking about threats and adversaries and, and responding to them. So I would like to see locally empowered police forces with better intelligence. And, and that includes undercover operations. And it, it includes lawfully authorized uh, wiretaps. I mean, that's not going to go away. We do it against organized crime, so we, why not do it against uh, in, intelligence threats? The, the issue of contractors, Blackwater has been a, a horrible example of contracting out lethal force. I, I disagree with that. And now uh, I have used in my government service, and, and remember I left government seven years ago, more than seven years ago, left the CIA almost 10 years ago. So my knowledge is, is, is dated. But, but I use contractors, um, some uh, with, with lethal force, out of necessity because the bureaucracy couldn't move fast enough. So they can be expedient measures, but it brings great risk, as the example that you noted. The role, however, of contractors that bring technical expertise or, or deep subject matter knowledge that's important and that's going to grow. And I think we should make a difference between the two. Uh, the outsourcing of lethal force versus the outsourcing of, of, of expertise. And the reason that dependence is going to grow is because of the complexity that I talked about. There's just so much going on. And a very simple example, when I started the CIA in 1981, almost all of our technology was indigenous to the agency or the intelligence community. We would develop it. We would deploy it. But over the course of my career, by the time I left, almost all our technology was developed external to the CIA. I mean, why would we use some, you know, government tool when we could go get the latest, greatest thing and pay a fraction of the cost for it? And, and I'll, I'll refer, to, and I can refer to this because I wrote about it in the book, was the development of the Predator drone. This came out of General Atomics in San Diego. They built it. They knew how to fly it. They were terrific. 
and it, and it was a deal. I mean, for $5 million, when we were in CTC, we authorized the deployment of two Predator drones. Five million bucks. That was a lot of money for us back then. But you look how it's transformed warfare. Now, maybe to an extent that we don't want, maybe it has eclipsed the value of human intelligence and empathetic knowledge that I've talked about. So I'm not advocating that in absence of, of human intelligence. But my point is that contractors are critical to the national security mission. It should be defined, and there should be oversight there. We're just about out of time, but I wonder if you could, just to extend that question, after 9-11, there was a review of the structure of the intelligence community, and a new structure was put in place where a position of director of national intelligence, an organization formed around that, a person put in charge of it, General James Clapper, serving at the moment. Is your sense that that has been helpful in this regard, not helpful, or... Too early to tell. Not helpful. Not helpful. There's another bureaucracy, uh, and and I I know General Clapper, and they've done some good analytical work, but it really has added another bureaucracy. Yet another layer. Yeah. What, there are 2,000 people there in this coordinating body? 2,000 people to coordinate the intelligence community. But it's a political response to 9-11. And it also speaks to the political weakness of the CIA in domestic politics, and it also reflects my own bias. But the CIA knew more about the al-Qaeda threat, did more to stop al-Qaeda, did more after 9-11 than any other organization in D.C. But as you expect in a political town, the CIA gets penalized more than any other organization in D.C. in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, and that's just, that's just a fact. And I could talk more about that, but it, 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 it is not helpful. Um, and it needs to be restructured. And the 9-11 Commission also recommend, this was a good recommendation on their part, not all of them were, but they did recommend that the oversight function in Congress be completely overhauled. And of course, Congress has ignored that recommendation entirely, not only for the CIA, but for Homeland Security and law enforcement. It is a complete mess. Ambassador, thank you very much. Thank you. Enjoyed it. This concludes our interview with former U.S. counterterrorism coordinator and best-selling author Hank Crumpton. If you'd like to learn more about global security and the war on terror, check out CuriosityStream.com, a new on-demand video platform with top documentaries and fascinating interviews about history, science, technology, and more. You can also join us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter to learn about our latest releases and upcoming events. Watch what you want, where you want, ad-free. Visit CuriosityStream.com. That's CuriosityStream.com.